Welcome to the Heart of Innovation, 60 minutes that can save life and limb with new breakthrough ideas and innovation changing the healthcare landscape. Brought to you by patient advocacy group, thewaytomyheart.org, in partnership with Abbott. Here are your hosts for the Heart of Innovation, Emmy Award-winning journalist and founder of The Way to My Heart, Kim McNicholas, and interventional cardiologist and founder of the Save My Piggies Health Education Series, Dr. John Phillips. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the show. It is the perfect day. Dr. John Phillips and I were talking um, off air just before the show about this being just the perfect day to be sitting inside on our Zoom, talking on the radio, because in one part of the country, it is snowing. In my part of the country on the West Coast, it is storming with lots of rain and wind and some hail in certain areas. So it's a good day to be inside, (laughs) staying warm, listening to us on the radio. (laughs) Yes, and getting ready. We're going to be watching football, football, (laughs) Kim. You're a 49ers fan. I'm a Packers fan. We're going to make this civil conversation today, but uh, <laughs> may the best team win. Yeah, definitely. I don't know. We'll have to see on this one. I- I'm curious uh, what the odds are on, on this one. Have you heard? Yeah, so the 49ers are favored by about nine and a half points. They're a good team. Great offense, stout defense. Mm-hmm. You know, I always I'm the eternal optimist with everything in life. Packers have a chance, but they have to have an eight plus game and create some turnovers. So we'll see. We don't fare very well against the 49ers last couple playoff runs. So fingers crossed. I think the Packers, though, are better playing in weather because it's it's storming here. And I, I think that we've been pretty spoiled over the last few years here in California, not having too much weather. And in terms of practice, they don't practice that much in the rain out here. It, the Packers, be, I mean, however, you, you covered sports, right? I did. I was the first female sports director slash sports anchor in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I was the first one to have a racing show. That's awesome. <laughs> and I did so, sideline reporting for the Pac-12. Let me ask you this question. Were you ever one of those that had to, like, catch the coach, like, oh, yeah. halftime and, like, Hey, I need 30 second, a clip from you. And, you know, the coach wants to get off the field. They're clearly bothered by the fact that they have to talk to a reporter. Was that ever you like trying to, it was was always me, especially in in college, you know, whether it was Berkeley or Sanford or up at UC Davis and Arizona was another team, but I've always thought they were very kind. They always, it. but here's what was unexpected for me. I was always told that that sideline reporter would have questions fed to them. From from up there, because you're sitting there on the sidelines, I'm getting updates on injuries, I'm running from one side of the field to the other. I'm not really sitting there watching the game, because I'm having to watch what else is everything else that's going on on the sidelines, all the storylines that are on the sidelines. And so when they come to me at halftime... My first game, I was sitting there going, uh, where's the question? <laughs> so <laughs> that, was, that was a real eye-opening experience for me. Um, but after that, of course, I was really sitting there as I was running around, listening to the, you know, the commentators call out the plays and things like that. So I was able to be more informed. But yeah, that was a surprise. They, I was not fed any questions down there as a sideline reporter. It, was all, it all comes down to us. Now, see, this is really fascinating to me. Did did you know much about football or like the sports you covered or would you like, okay, I got to read up on this or, 
or was it like you gravitated towards football because you liked football or something? I you know, I was grown up, you know, watching football. Um, my grandmother was a big football fan, so to hang out with my grandmother, I had to sit there and watch football. My brother played football. My both my brothers were into sports. My dad picked off Joe Namath in a high school game. I know, right? <laughs> big Dad, that's awesome. All right, <laughs> it's his claim to fame. Um, but and I was a stats girl, so I did stats for all of the different um, sports teams. So I really knew the plays, I knew the the calls, and that kind of thing. Where I did need to catch up at that point when I became the sports anchor was really getting to know all of the different storylines in all the different sports. And then one sport that I became really proficient in and ended up with my own racing show was, in fact, racing. Because at the time when I started out as a sports anchor, I... Um, racing really wasn't a big deal, even though we had Infineon Raceway at the time, um, one of two road courses on the NASCAR Next Hill Cup circuit, at least that's what it used to be. Now it's Sonoma Raceway. And I used to go to these press conferences and I would be sitting with maybe one or two other reporters and all of the NASCAR drivers from Jeff Gordon to Tony Stewart to Carl Edwards. They were all sitting, <laughs> we were just sitting at the at the table with their girlfriends or their wives just hanging out. So I got to know them really well. And I I became very passionate about the sport. That's awesome. I, see, I did not know that about you at all. I, I knew there was a sports background, but the racing, no clue. Do you go to NASCAR stuff at all or still have I don't do as much anymore. I, I used to, but now I've become so, I'm the type of person that when I, you know, get into something, I immerse myself. And so I was really immersed at the time into every single sport and, and whatever, but now I'm really immersed into healthcare and spending most of my time going to those conferences, talking to patients, talking with you every week. So that's taking up most of my time, except for watching football with my dad. We do try and catch the games. <laughs> is, is dad, who's dad going to be pulling for today? 49ers? He's or definitely Packers? a 49ers fan. I mean, All unless right. the Steelers are playing, then Steelers, that's our team. Yeah, well, that's right because the, the you guys are from that area, or he was from that area, right? Yeah, well, yeah, you know what? Yeah. I still like your dad, so we'll leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? Because of you, we always vote for Ohio. We want Ohio that, this and Ohio that. So <laughs> that, that's true. That's true. All right. In college, we're we're all about Ohio, just I'll, for you. <laughs> I'll take what I can get. <laughs> I want you to be in a good mood and be saving those piggies. I'm in a great mood. Yeah, we uh, man, this was a rough week though for us. We had uh, a patient who. Um, Ended up losing both her legs uh, what? because, yeah, it was just, yeah, it, I, I was involved in the care a little bit, but she had um, presented, she had cancer and then oh, no. was getting some treatment. And we think she, well, she embolized, meaning clot had formed and blocked arteries in, in both legs. Oh. Um, and because of the cancer treatment, she had some blood work issues that were uh, prohibitive for us to do anything. And then by the time that got better, we, it was just um, nothing we could do. And last night she had uh, both her, her right and left leg amputated. It just, cause I, I helped out to try to restore some blood flow, but it was too late. You know, sometimes we can get the blood flow back, but if the damage is too profound, the, or the, the, the tissue and the skin and muscle and stuff, just necrosis. And it's unfortunate. I've been getting a lot, you know, through our nonprofit organization. I've been getting quite a few um, cancer patients lately um, that they ended up having damage from the radiation. 
Is that something that you see quite a bit with the the arteries? We'll see that in in patients that have had like chest wall radiation. Oh, interesting. Uh, you'll see that in the coronary arteries, but not too much in the peripheral. Not in the leg. No, but you know, people are at risk for clot formation when they have a malignancy, oh, yeah. and so. This is something I've never seen, though. I've never seen both both legs get knocked out at the level of the knees, and we couldn't even try to open one. We opened the other one, but it was too late. So this was a first for me, and you just take a step back, and you wonder what you could have done differently. I don't think we could have done anything differently, but you just feel so bad for the patient and the family because this is a life life-changing experience for sure in a bad way. So in, in a really bad day, as if she didn't suffer enough, right? You know, with the cancer and she fought that and then suddenly to have complications because of that treatment it is really sad. And, and one thing, I know we only have a few seconds left before we go to break, but I think this is an important point. When it comes to blood clots, there's still so much that we don't know. And you can go in there and you poke the beehive with that wire and you could shower clots and just trash the foot. And sometimes, and I think even, what would you say most of the time going in there when it's a situation with a bunch of fresh clot, it, it's it's like going in blind at times. You, you don't know what you're going to get. Yeah, you do, you do the best you can. You have, you're prepared for, uh, you know, instances like that, but you, you, you can't. Don't necessarily know what to do half a lot of the time. You just kind of do make one step forward and just kind of reassess and, and keep moving. So, um, yeah, I guess that's that's the best we can do. We can, and I know, and I can see it's really hard on you. And so, it's good for for patients to see that anytime you know they have to amputate it, it's not a good day. It's it's a bad day for the patient, and it's a bad day for the doctor, and it, it's really sad. So, um, we wish the best to to that patient. Hopefully, she'll be able to to continue and and thrive even still. We have plenty of patients that have been able to thrive in a wheelchair and get prosthetics and, and move forward, and hopefully she's one of them. Indeed. Coming up next on the Heart of Innovation, we're going to get on our into our main topic of the day. I see our guest has arrived, so we're going to be talking about high blood pressure, complications that go along with that, as well as some breakthrough treatments. So stay with us right here on the Heart of Innovation. Leg health can indicate risk for heart attack, stroke, and amputation. If you have leg pain or cramps while walking, get checked for peripheral artery disease, or PAD. PAD is plaque buildup in mainly the leg arteries. Be sure to ask your physician for an ankle brachial index, also called an ABI test, where they use blood pressure cuffs to analyze the blood pressure in your legs. If they discover you have arterial plaque that's limiting blood flow to your feet, medicine and a regimented walking program are frontline treatment. If PAD is in its advanced stages, your physician may schedule a surgical intervention. Minimally invasive tools are available to remove plaque and restore blood flow, including Cardiovascular System's Diamondback 360 Athrectomy System, which sands away plaque that is a hard calcium. It's important to discuss all options with your physician, and if told you have no options, get a second opinion. Take a stand against amputation. For more information, go to standagainstamputation.com. That's standagainstamputation.com. Welcome back to The Heart of Innovation. For more on today's topic, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. Once again, here's Emmy Award-winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips. Welcome back, everybody, and thank you for joining us. Kim, I think we're going to get into the meat of our conversation. We spent the first segment talking about sports 
I'm a Packers fan, your 49ers fan. Our guest and my friend, Dr. Eric Sosemski, is actually a Bears fan, I heard. So, um, you know, licking his wounds maybe, but uh, <laughs> I'm, we'll I'm see. Licking his paws. We're waiting for a moment, man. We're waiting for a moment. So it'll come. I, I, hey, you got to believe. You got to believe. Um, but yeah, so Kim, you wanted to have a conversation about hypertension. And, uh, you know, Eric and I see folks that have hypertension. I know Eric's going to talk to us about his hypertension clinic uh, at, uh, at the Brigham, right? And um, Beth Israel. Or is Beth. it Beth Israel? Beth there Israel. you go. Right across and, the street. Um, yeah. Right across the street. It, it, you know, a lot of folks have hypertension. It goes untreated. And I... I'll, I often, I was going to, you know, sometimes we do a, an inspirational quote and we don't necessarily need to do the hoopla about it, but I have a quote from Vince Lombardi and I think it's germane with respect to hypertension treatment. And so Vince Lombardi is quoted as saying, individual commitment to a group effort is what makes a teamwork, a company work, society work, and a civilization work. So we sometimes, and I'm, I'm guilty of this. I I see a patient who has hypertension in the office and I say, you know what? You've probably talked to your primary care doctor about that. And then I imagine that, that patient goes to the primary care doctor and the primary care doctor says, you probably talk to your cardiologist about that. We kind of yeah. pass this buck, the buck, but that's an individual who we need to work and commit to helping in a group effort. And so I'm really excited to have this conversation. Uh, I'm, I know Eric is going to talk about a, a new treatment that just got FDA approved that hopefully can help patients with hypertension. So, Kim, let's kick it off and let's discuss hypertension for the next, what, 35 minutes or so. Right. And Eric, you know, the reason that I, I brought this forward is because um, I don't know if you know that my mom transitioned. It's still something that's so surreal for me every single day. I know we're almost two years later. I can't believe it because she was my best friend. And now I, I just every day play back in my mind all of her healthcare history and all of the things that were brushed off and and trying to put together timeline after timeline. And one of the things that I remember way back when is her being on blood pressure medications. And the doctor saying, well, it's not because you, I think you typically have like high blood pressure overall, but you have this white coat syndrome. And if you have this white coat syndrome when you're here and you have high blood pressure, well, it's likely if you have 10 times at home that your blood pressure goes up. So let's just put you on high blood pressure medication. No big deal. Nothing else you need to do as if it was just an everyday thing. No discussion about um, what might be causing overall the, the high blood pressure. Um, is there something going on with your kidneys? Looking back into her charts, well, she had, you know, stage two kidney, um, chronic kidney disease. Maybe that played a role. I don't know. And then suddenly, fast forward, her blood pressure became erratic and she was gone within two months from a dissected aneurysm. And so it's like, whoa, wait a minute. And I just hear this all the time. Oh, you have high blood pressure. So can you just kind of dial us back and start from the very beginning? And explain what is high blood pressure, what are some of the different causes, and we'll get into some of the treatments as well. And oh, by the way, why are you so passionate about it? <laughs> Wonderful. Well, yeah, so thrilled to be on the show, trying to love that quote. Um, and mm -hmm. Kim, I, I, you know, I, you know, we've talked about, you know, your loss before, and I know it's still, you know, present every day. And so, and, you know, what you're doing is wonderful to bring awareness to all conditions from PAD, but also everything that influences PAD. And, you know, we, we talk a lot about, uh, as an interventional cardiologist, both John and I and vascular surgeon, interventional radiologist, about 
all these treatment algorithms. We're going to cross a blockage. We're going to put a stent in. We're going to save someone's leg. But we, we often forget that this process was, if not avoidable, at least something that could have been slowed. If we had gone back 20 years and done a lot of the interventions that don't really get done to most patients in the U.S., which is controlling these modifiable risk factors, getting people off tobacco, putting them on cholesterol medication, and really importantly, controlling blood pressure. And so, you know, I became passionate about this about three or four years ago. And, and similar to what John shared about his own clinical experience, you know, when you're in a cardiovascular clinic, we get patients who come in and they've just had a heart attack, they have heart failure, they have arrhythmias that are uncontrolled. And the list is so long that when you see an elevated blood pressure read, it's probably fifth or sixth on your list in a 15 to 20 minute visit. And you, you punt it down the line. You say, well, let's check it at home. Send me a, a blood pressure read. Talk to your primary care doctor. Um, you know, and, and so what I observed in our own you know, practices, I've been in several hospitals across Boston, San Francisco, and Chicago now is, you know, we, we really need a dedicated um, physicians and a center to really do the best for our patients. And, and if you step back and look at the numbers, one out of every two people in the U.S. has high blood pressure. One wow. out of every two people. So this isn't, you know, you walk in the mall and maybe one person in the mall has this condition. It's everywhere you turn. And so it's also been labeled the silent killer for a reason, because the hard part with the high blood pressure is the majority of people do not know they have it. We very infrequently, you know, develop symptoms early on in the process of high blood pressure. So we could be walking around for years, decades with high blood pressure that's uncontrolled, if we've not had any opportunity to see a primary care doctor, get our blood pressure read, um, been willing to follow up, you know, you know, there's a lot of really opportunities to intervene that are lost because it doesn't cause symptoms. And, you know, we often have other conditions that take precedence. And so that was really where my passion around this has come, you know, and high blood pressure for everybody um, out there, is really when the flow of blood down your blood vessels is going at a higher pressure than it's safe for our organs. So if you think about turning on a faucet and the water flying out and spraying all over, that is, you know, high flow. That can cause high pressure. And if you if you put something in front of it, like a thin piece of glass, you can fracture it. You know, in the body, when there's high flow, high pressure like that, a lot of our organs are sensitive to this. In particular, our brains our hearts, our kidneys, these organs don't like that pressure pushing up against the small vessels, pushing up against the pumping heart, and it causes problems over time. It can cause dissections and aneurysms in the brain. It can cause thickening of the heart muscle, weakening of the heart, and holding on to fluid. And it can cause pressure on the kidneys to the point that the kidneys start to scar and fail. And and Kim, you kind of mentioned this as well. And so we see this across our patients. Unfortunately, some of our most vulnerable patients, those who have a minority race background, um, those who are underserved or live in poor areas have higher prevalences of this. And there's some probably genetics to that, but also some of our environment where there's more processed foods, less fresh foods and other environmental factors that are making this condition even worse for our most vulnerable patients. And coming up right here on the Heart of Innovation, we're going to get more into the heart of high blood pressure and some treatment options. So stay with us right here on the Patient Don't Go Away. 
Three years ago, my symptoms started with leg pain and leg cramps while walking. Me too, with a tightness in my calves. Well, do you know, my doctor thought that my leg cramps were a side effect of the statin he prescribed me. Well, my doctor just brushed them off as another symptom of old age. Mine thought the pain was radiating from my spine. My doctor blamed my neuropathy on diabetes until I got a wound on my foot that just wouldn't heal. Yeah, it turns out we all have peripheral artery disease, also known as PAD. It's plaque buildup mainly in the leg arteries causing poor circulation. For me, the diagnosis came too late and I lost my leg, but that does not have to happen to you. No, it does not, because there are treatment options available if you're diagnosed early enough. PAD, peripheral artery disease. If you've been experiencing leg pain, leg cramps, or neuropathy when walking, and your doctor isn't hearing you, we are. We are the way to my heart, the largest support network for peripheral artery disease patients. And we want to help you get back on your feet again. Visit our website at thewaytomyheart.com. Or call our Legsaver hotline, 415-320-7138. Your life and limb could depend on it. Welcome back to The Heart of Innovation. For more on today's topic, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. Once again, here's Emmy Award-winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips. Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for joining us. We're continuing our conversation with Dr. Eric Sosemski, interventional cardiologist out of Beth Israel in Boston. We've just started to kind of touch on hypertension. And during the break, Eric and I and Kim, we were kind of discussing like, hey, let's let's take this from let's take hypertension from the patient's point of view. And so, Eric, pretend you're seeing me in the office and I get checked in. My blood pressure is 145 over 80. And, um, you know, you're, you're going to talk to me about my other health issues. I've had a heart attack, et cetera, and, and presumably I'm on the right medications. But, you know, let's say you forget to mention it. And I say, you know, Dr. Semsky, what do you think about my blood pressure? What, what, what should I do here? What are your thoughts? Yeah, that's a wonderful, uh, you know, question and, and really important for everybody out there to think about what is the right questions to ask and, and how do I interact with my physician, my doctor, my clinician about managing my blood pressure when I do get an elevated read? So, you know, I think one thing that, you know, we've all seen when we're in the office with our patients is um, it's never easy to get to your doctor's office and into the room. And so we all know um, that we're often rushing and trying to find parking and trying to run up the stairs, or up the elevator to get to the the office room, and then we get a blood pressure read that's elevated. And so what is elevated first? Usually that means that the top number, which we call the systolic blood pressure, SBP, the top number is over 135, or the bottom number, which is called the diastolic blood pressure, DPP, is over 90, usually over 80, but 90. And so, you know, once you start to get reads that are over 135 over 80, then, you know, we know that that can be an elevated blood pressure reading. And it can always be triggered by events, whether it's stress, when we exercise, we know our blood pressure goes up. So we know that there are some triggers. But when you go to see your doctor, I, I don't think it's really enough to say or uh, have that conversation with the physician that, 
oh, I rushed in here and that's why my blood pressure is elevated because we need a little bit more data. You know, we need to understand a little bit more. And so one of the first questions I ask um, my patients are, have you checked your blood pressure at home? And if so, what are the normal numbers that you're getting? And if they say, no, I haven't, um, and even if they say, yes, I do, I usually check it again a little further into our appointment because then we have a little bit of time for everyone to, to settle in and just see if we're getting the same measurement again. And I think one thing with blood pressure, just like our body's day-to-day you know, functioning is it's dynamic. It's changing based on our activities and whatnot. But even these single measurements give us some insight that maybe that patient's blood pressure has been running high and hasn't been seen. And so step one is really confirming that that blood pressure read is accurate. And again, rechecking it in the office, confirming what blood pressure reads look like at home if you do have a blood pressure cuff, or looking at some of the other visits they've had with other doctors recently can give you some perspective on that. What are some, so, oh, go ahead, Kim. Well, I was just going to what I was told is that if you do have high blood pressure, when you first go in in the first read, they can they do it three times is is standard, once in the middle and then once at the end, correct? Yeah, so there's a couple of different approaches for that reason. And, and again, the everybody's triggers can be different, but um, some machines actually, and, and my primary care physician does this for me when I'm their patient, is it will actually, the nurse and the physician will step out of the room. And so they'll kind of put me in the patient room um, with the machine and they'll check my blood pressure three or four times over five minutes. And what that typically does is allow our bodies just to accommodate sitting down and, and relaxing and then trying to get a more um, accurate read. Uh, but I think very other uh, reasonable approach, Kim, like you mentioned, is even if that they don't have that type of machine or do that approach is checking again later in the visit, um, either in the middle or in the end, just to get a confirmatory number uh, to move forward with next steps. So, so why is it that one in two American adults have high blood pressure? I mean, that's just, it's, it can't just be, is it the stress? Do they have it's, any research on this? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of data on this. You know, a, a, a much of this is our body's adjustment to really an industrialized world. You know, when, when our bodies were first made, it wasn't with the same exposures that we have in our life today. And so a lot of this is really explained by multiple factors. So there are some components of this that can be genetic. There are some types of high blood pressure that can be um, caused by other conditions. Um, but the majority of people have what we call essential hypertension, which means it is really high blood pressure that everyone, um, there isn't necessarily a causative issue. It's more of the environment plus our genetics. And if you think about what causes blood pressure to go up, it's the things that really plague us every day, all our vices. It's being overweight. It's being sedentary. It's drinking too much alcohol. These are all the factors that increase our blood pressure and really is what in part is driving a lot of this prevalence higher is that we have really seen the obesity epidemic take its toll. And that has caused a lot of people that have poorly controlled blood pressure. We eat a lot of food that's processed with salt and other factors that can raise our blood pressure. So, you know, there is a lot that is around us that's influencing this, influencing this. But I, I will say there is still a genetic component and some secondary causes. 
So if we go back to the patient who you see has a blood pressure is 145, whatever it is, it's elevated. You And the patients ask you, okay, well, what can I do to get that blood, that number lower without having to take medication? What do, What's the first thing you're going to tell them? Yeah. So there's a couple ways I think about it. First is, what are their other medical problems and how high risk they are? So if that patient came in and they had a recent stroke or a recent heart attack, I want to move a little faster and I want to be a little bit more aggressive. But most people who come in and have a diagnosis of high blood pressure or hypertension are usually young and that might be their only problem. That's what happened to me when I was in my, my late 20s and early 30s. And there are things that we can do to lower blood pressure. And again, it goes back to what I just mentioned, all the things that we did to cause our blood pressure to be elevated. We know that weight loss, you know, several pounds of weight loss can drop your blood pressure by five to 10 points. Being active can really be effective at reducing our blood pressure, limiting our alcohol intake to what's recommended, recommended one to two drinks a day really can also help make modifications to our blood pressure. And then some people, not everyone, but some people are really sensitive to salt. And so lowering salt and even increasing potassium intake, like through bananas and other foods, can also help lower our blood pressure without needing a pill. Well, coming up right now, here on the Heart of Innovation, we're going to find out what his clinic is doing to actually treat not only general high blood pressure, but also that hard-to-treat high blood pressure. They have a breakthrough treatment you won't want to miss. So stay with us right here on the Heart of Innovation. Don't go away. Welcome back to the Heart of Innovation. For more on today's topic, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. Once again, here's Emmy Award-winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips. Welcome back, everybody. Let's get back into this discussion. So, Eric, riddle, riddle me this. You, We talked about it. We've got almost half of Americans have hypertension. It's a disease that... We not necessarily don't know why people have it. We talked about the essential component of it. People are living longer. Their arteries aren't as compliant as they used to. But let's put that aside. So this is a disease. Half Americans have it. We're doing a terrible job of controlling it. Um, I'm looking at the CDC website, and it says half of adults with uncontrolled high blood pressures have readings of over 150. That's about wow. 37 million Americans. So we're doing a terrible job. But we can prevent this. So you guys took it upon yourselves to start a hypertension clinic. Tell us the genesis behind that and how that led to your involvement in a breakthrough therapy. It's it's was I mean, we were doing it before and we can, I guess, maybe get into the trial and that wasn't positive. But now the trial uh, for real denervation looked good. So now we're going to potentially have another treatment option. So there's hope on the horizon, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think, you know, one thing we haven't talked about is the good thing about high blood pressure is there's a lot of therapies out there. We all know what blood pressure agents are. We've probably either taken them ourselves or have a loved one, a parent, a grandparent who's on a blood pressure agent. And over the last 30, 40 years, there's been a number of different classes and blood pressure medications developed. So that sounds great. The problem with blood pressure medications, though, is everybody's body responds to them differently. And so some people can have a little effect or a larger effect from a blood pressure med. Some people can have a really bad intolerance 
They can feel less energetic. They can get headaches. They can get swelling in their legs. And so when you step back and look at all those patients who have high blood pressure, who should be managed and getting to those blood pressure readings of less than 135 over 80, as you mentioned, John, more than 50% are not reaching that. And big part of this is being adherent to the medications prescribed. If you look across different studies, more than 40% of people who were prescribed blood pressure medications were not taking them consistently. And it's not that these are bad patients or bad people. These are challenging regimens. They can be pills that need to be taken one, two, or three times a day. They're pills that are dependent on you taking them every day. And when you miss a day, your blood pressure shoots up. And if you look at the number of meds, if you go from being on two blood pressure meds to three three blood pressure meds, you're twice as likely to not be able to adhere to that regimen. About, again, 40% of people at that point when they're on three meds can't take them every day, even though they're trying. And if you go up to five meds, it's well over 50%. So, you know, John, to your question, you know, we, we recognize this in our own day-to-day. You know, you ask your patients. Um, occasionally, we've had pharmacists do pill counts, and there's a pile of pills at the end of the month. And the patient said, I'm trying so hard. But that one day, I wasn't feeling well. The next day, you know, I, I was out of town, and I forgot my pills. And, you know, and some people, again, I just can't tolerate this medication. And so two things really need to happen. One is these patients needed a place that we're walking them through more regularly a protocol, an algorithm to find the right meds that might work for them. And then two is a pathway to really bring in new technology so that we have alternative treatment options for blood pressure. They're not reliant on taking a pill. And so about three years ago, renal denervation, as John kind of presented, was this kind of breakthrough procedure we've been talking about for 10 years. It's a minimally invasive procedure. You come in in the morning, it's just like if you had an angiogram or a heart cath that John and I do on a daily basis. Um, But in this procedure, you actually thread a wire and a catheter into the kidney arteries in both of them, and you apply some energy, some heat. And that heat will shut down these overactive nerves, these nerves that can be increasing blood pressure, in particular in certain people, to a higher extreme. And it's been a long journey trying to get these devices approved. Their effect are are good. They can lower blood pressure by about 10 points. But it's not something that's easy when you look at a group of people because everybody responds a little bit differently. And so some of the early studies were not supporting that this is better than a procedure that had we call sham procedure, no effect. But more recently, there's been six trials that showed this benefit. Six trials that were designed a little bit differently and some newer technology. And finally, in November of 2023, two devices were approved by the FDA and now commercially available. So three years ago, we recognized that we we're having a problem managing our patients' blood pressure. And a couple of things as we looked at it from a cardiovascular group was we have to own this condition. Uh, we're cardiologists. We're vascular doctors. We're dealing with the end effects of high blood pressure, heart attacks and limbs being lost and really uncontrolled, you know, heart failure. And so we needed to do a better job and we needed to um, offer therapies as they come along and have a pathway to introduce them to our patients. And so I was really fortunate. Uh, I had a fantastic um, fellow named Anna Krawis. She was, uh, she's a cardiologist. She trained in vascular medicine with me. 
And she kind of got turned on as I was to high blood pressure. And we sent her off to get a hypertension certification. And we had a primary care doctor who had been doing fantastic things in high blood pressure as well, named Jennifer Cluett. And together, we formed a complex hypertension clinic. Um, we started this within our cardiovascular division. We got some buy-in from our institution. And the whole charge of that clinic is anybody. It doesn't matter if you are on zero to one meds or five to 10 meds. Anybody in any stage of their high blood pressure has a home, had a place where they can interact with a physician, have nurse follow-up, have pharmacist follow-up. And what we do is really work through finding the right regimen for that patient because we recognize that regimen can be different. Blood pressure medication regimen, lifestyle regimen, whatever it might be, we can find that right regimen for that patient. And now that we have this new technology, this device that can lower blood pressure in patients who have challenges with control, we're able to really bring that conversation forward and introduce that technology. And we've been doing these procedures now since November. And how many people, how many of these, you know, one in two, right, in, in the U.S. that have this high blood pressure, how many of them have high blood pressure that is triggered by these overactive nerves that ultimately could be treated through this RD, what is it, RDN program? Exactly. Yeah, RDN is the abbreviation for renal denervation. And, you know, the, the theory here is for anybody with high blood pressure, these nerves are contributing to some degree. Um, and so we know from the trials that in some patients, the nerves, when we shut them down with this catheter, may cause a, a modest blood pressure reduction, five or eight points. But if you also look at the data, there are people who have a 25-point blood pressure reduction. So also, everybody's body... Sorry, yeah, John, please. Just real quick, correct me if I'm wrong, but even a drop in 5% reduces your cardiovascular risk, doesn't it? Signif I mean, it may be 10% reduction. So that's that's some, that's a big number. I mean, five isn't huge, but it translates into something potentially very beneficial for the patient, right? I think we're, me and you are in tune right now. That's exactly right. When when you get when you get even a five point blood pressure reduction, as in, in a persistent, you know, you want it every day for as long as possible. You can get a ten percent, like you said, reduction in major cardiovascular events, and that's including stroke, heart failure, um, heart disease, even cardiovascular death, and so. I always say every point counts. That's been my motto. Um, and, and so I think with this therapy, you know, we don't necessarily look for people who have hyperactive nerves. We look more to see um, if people are really struggling with the control, finding the right blood pressure agents and need to look for alternative therapies. And, and then we apply this to, uh, really, you know, procedure, hoping that they get the response um, on the higher end. Um, and we've seen a lot of great results so far. Are people coming out of the woodwork to to be in your clinic? I, I imagine it's booked to the gills. Yeah, we're really busy. And, you know, patients are referring themselves, but doctors also, just like us, John, who say, listen, we just don't have the bandwidth and we want the best for our patients. So it's best to have our colleagues be able to contribute to their care. And, and we have a center to really do that. And so that's exactly right. It's It's been a wonderful asset for our hospital system. I would imagine it would be really difficult because right now there are so many shortages and everyone in the healthcare system is so tapped. How did you convince Beth Israel to allocate these resources simply to this particular clinic? They must have seen an overall benefit and cost reduction actually along with it and patient outcome benefit. Yeah. You know, I think, again, when you have to go to administrators to make a case for something that 
potentially could be, uh, you know, not the most financially insolvent. You know, we take a look at the big picture. We say, listen, we're going to do something that not many centers are doing. We're going to have our center have wonderful blood pressure control for our patients, which is going to translate into better outcomes. And we're going to attract people from, you know, all over the country who want to be part of a system like this. And so I, I think that's the vision that you have to feel comfortable working with the administrators on. And the most important part is you got to follow through. <laughs> and that's, you know, always been my message is, you know, it's easy to talk, but, you know, you got to make things happen and, and then things really grow. Coming up right here on the Heart of Innovation, we'll have more with Eric Sosemski and high blood pressure treatment. So stay with us right here on 860 AM, The Answer. Welcome back to the Heart of Innovation. For more on today's topic, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. Once again, here's Emmy Award-winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips. Continuing with our football theme, we're uh, into two-minute warning here. Go back. Uh, so we're rounding the uh, the show up here uh eric you are a numbers guy you do a lot of work with population health health you get a lot of data for us in the interventional world i imagine you've looked at your data with respect to your team's ability to control blood pressure and that in the community what what numbers are you seeing or what are you seeing yeah i mean i think we're having fantastic outcomes you know i would say that the majority i mean i would say over 75 percent of our patients who have seen us are now reaching their blood pressure goals um, through you know a wow. number of visits. It usually takes three to four visits for us to really find the right combination therapies. Um, but we really are making a mark in terms of how patients are being able to manage this condition. But you know, I, I think also most importantly, it's just patients feeling like they have a home um, to present to with these problems. Again, things come up all the time with our patients and who have high blood pressure, and and so. We're a resource to them, and I, I think that we are aiming for control, but aiming also to be an asset for their overall care. What role do insurance protocols play? Because I know, for example, if you have, um, you know, high acidity in, in your stomach and they need to put you on a Prilosec or, a, you know, any one of the other ones, they have this line, depending on insurance, is you try this first, you try this second, you try this third, or else we're not going to cover it. You can't jump from one to four, right? Do you feel that same pressure when it comes to blood pressure? That's a great question. You know, the one nice thing about blood pressure agents are they're made very cheap. The, the older ones have been around a long time. So the average person could get a very good regimen of blood pressure agents for a very affordable amount of money. And you could get like the Walmart or Amazon pricing there. But the one thing that we have seen in a number of trials are these combination pills. If you actually take two or three different types of blood pressure medications and put them in a pill, um, you are more likely to take that pill and actually can get better control of your blood pressure. Those, though, tend to be challenging to get coverage for from from the insurance companies. And so um, if anywhere, we've seen some struggle with the um, ability to cover the pills. The procedure we were talking about also is brand new and, and groundbreaking. And so that also we've had some trouble with insurance as it launches, but that hopefully will be better um, in the mid-year of this year when we have a little bit clearer coverage for that. What if people want this procedure and think that it's right for them? What are the indications that this procedure might be right for you? And how do these patients actually access it if they're not in Boston and being able to go to your clinic at Beth Israel? 
Yeah, well, you know, I invite anybody from anywhere to come visit us and we'll make it comfortable. Uh, just don't come in the, the peak of winter. We're dealing with some cold weather right now. But the, uh, you know, I think the this is just launched again. November was with the approval to this therapy. And the nice thing that the FDA did was we, we weren't sure what the labeling was going to be, but they've really created a broad indication. So if you have high blood pressure that's not controlled, um, you're technically a candidate for this procedure. Now, ideally, in our practice, we want people to fail blood pressure meds because in the end of the day, if we can find a good regimen for you with blood pressure agents, you know, I think that's preferable over the long term. But if we are struggling to get you on the right agents, if you're having intolerances to those agents, then uh, really this procedure is a great option for patients to explore. Um, going online is a little challenging. We're working on getting set up uh, to identify sites that are offering this. Um, the two companies that uh, produce the device, one's called Recor, R-E-C-O-R. The other one's called Medtronic. Um, I, I think they have resources on their websites to identify providers doing these procedures. And we, we actually at Riverside are participating. My partner, Joe Campbell, good friend of ours, uh, is leading the charge. So we're looking forward to it. Exciting stuff. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Eric, for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a great weekend, everyone. You've been listening to The Heart of Innovation with Emmy Award-winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips. Our mission is to help patients live a better quality of life through comprehensive education, real-time support, and high-touch advocacy in partnership with thewaytomyheart.org and Abbott. Our purpose is to reduce the 1.5 million heart attacks and strokes and nearly 200,000 amputations annually. For more information regarding topics you've heard discussed on today's program, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. The Heart of Innovation is for educational and informational purposes only, and advice and views shared are not a substitute for medical advice from your own supervising physician. Do not act on any information provided in this show without the explicit consent from your own healthcare team. If you think you are having a medical emergency, call your local emergency number or go to the nearest hospital or emergency room.